0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 24th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. And Welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Emma Nelson, and on today's show, Donald Trump wades into the crisis in Venezuela by supporting the opposition leader's claims to the presidency. In return, the current president kicks out American diplomats. I have decided to break diplomatic and political relations with the imperialist government of the United States. My guests Isabel Hilton and Robin Lustig will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Hong Kong bans disrespectful behaviour towards the Chinese National Anthem. We look at a state whose course seems set towards tighter control by Beijing. All that, plus Malaysia elects a new king. And are we moving one step closer to giving Macedonia its own name? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. And my guests today are Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Robin Lustig, journalist and broadcaster and former presenter of The World Tonight on BBC Radio 4. Both of you are former presenters of The World Tonight, so I shall just uh, kick off the programme straight away because within the last 24 hours, Venezuela's political crisis has adopted a breakneck speed. First, the opposition leader, Juan Guaido, declared himself interim president to a cloud of thousands at a rally. Now, that would have been enough to shake the incumbent, President Maduro, Perhaps not enough, though, to cause a genuine threat to his power. And then Donald Trump waded in, tweeting that the United States recognised Mr Guaido as Venezuela's leader. The citizens of Venezuela, he said, have suffered for too long at the hands of the illegitimate Maduro regime. President Maduro has responded by giving American diplomats in Venezuela 72 hours to leave. Well, where do we begin, Isabel? Where do we begin with this? Because... We've seen this social government that's, socialist government that's wrecked the country for years and years and years now, but something just seems to be a bit different at the moment.
1: Well, I think something is a bit different, um, and this is quite an interesting event. I mean, the United States tried this uh, once before in 2002, and it was a bit of a disaster. Uh, they tried it against um, Hugo Chavez, um, sponsored a coup, uh, which had, you know, kind of Washington written all over it. This was under Bush. Um, And um, (laughs) the the beneficiaries of the coup came in and said, we're doing this for democracy and immediately suspended Congress. And at that point, Chavez was hugely popular. And the people went out in the streets and they they just forced a retreat. Now, what's different this time is that, of course, um, Maduro is hugely unpopular and the people on the streets, genuinely on the streets, have a genuine grievance. Now, it's not just the United States that has recognized this move. um, And I, I should say that the Congress is fairly widely regarded as legitimate, whereas Maduro's last election was pretty much recognized by no advanced democracy. So the EU has come out, you know, supporting the, the, this initiative. Those against include Mexico, Russia and China. Um, but interestingly, Mexico is the only Latin America country that, that has um, come out in support of Maduro. All the rest, and this is really striking, despite the rather kind of clumsy intervention by Trump on Twitter, all the rest are pretty much supporting Guayado. And we'll see what he does now. But the problem is that the army is still backing Maduro. Maduro is refusing to leave. So I think we should recognise that this is going to be complicated and quite what the United States is prepared to do to move the situation on remains a little obscure.
0: So, Robin, who is this young man in his 30s, Gallardo, who seems to have got the, 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 the support not only of thousands of people in Venezuela himself, but as Isabel just said, the support of several very influential South American countries.
2: Well, I suppose the first thing one has to say is is he's not Maduro. And uh, he's young, he's a fresh face. Uh, He obviously is popular by very virtue of the fact that he possibly does represent something new and something different. The poor people of Venezuela have been through a really grim time over the last several years, ever since the collapse of the oil price, which in effect meant that the government could no longer by support, by what in the beginning of the Chavez era were very popular social programs to bring a lot of people out of poverty, to provide education and health and jobs and housing, all of that, Unfortunately, in the past, I mean, my first reaction when I heard what had happened was back to the future. I mean, this is this is a story that at one time in the 1970s in particular was extremely common in South America. Uh, coups uh, sponsored or backed or supported by the United States, uh, one illegitimate government following another. What worries me about this is that you've got, as Isabel was saying, uh, China and Russia backing Maduro, the United States backing Guaido, Um This has the potential to become a rather ugly and I hope, but potentially, I hope not, but potentially violent confrontation between global superpowers.
0: And domestically, there is still an enormous amount of incredibly deep hearted support for Maduro here. He is not entirely on his own. Publicly, he's not entirely on his own. Thousands of people turn up to to his rallies. Privately, the country's breaking.
1: Yes, but, but, you know, people do turn up to his rallies. There are, you know, there's a large government payroll, you know, and there is, um, there is a, a, you know, lingering uh, sentiment about about the Bolivarian revolution, the Chavez revolution, which did try to correct, you know, monstrous economic injustices which prevailed in Venezuela. So it's not, it's not that there are no sentiments. And of course, Maduro will blame the United States and Trump has made it easy for him to do that, he'll blame sanctions and so on. The majority, however, I think are just, you know, living hand to mouth, Uh, three million people have left. It's really in a state of collapse. So one of the key questions will be, how much would Russia and China be prepared to back this? Um, this the Maduro regime financially? China holds a lot of the debt. Um, and in fact, a lot of Venezuelan problems were to do with loans that China gave to Venezuela predicated on a, a, an oil price of $100 a barrel. When it dropped to 30, they were repaying in oil, which they, they had to pump at, you know, three times the rate in order just to service the debt. That meant they couldn't sell it on the market. That meant they had no foreign currency. So, you know, the whole thing is a mess. Will China roll that over, forgive it? Will Russia, which restructured some of the debt last year, you know, will they put their money where their mouth is? At the moment, China has has expressed... A kind of cautious disapproval of American action, and you know, it, China does not like a street protests overthrowing established governments, and B, the site of the United States interfering. So, as Robin says, we are we we are in a classic, you know, divide between superpowers here. But but what is not clear is which country is going really to invest in in this? Is the United States really going to, you know, support or with all that that might imply?
0: Are Russia and China really going to have a confrontation over this? How far do you think Donald Trump is prepared to go? The fact that he's waded in now has arguably set the ball rolling a lot faster than it could have done other than just having um, Guayardo deliver a rally and assuming the presidency.
2: Yeah, that's that's true. But, I mean, we've learned, haven't we, that what President Trump says and what President Trump does are two very different things. Um, His Twitter feed is not an accurate predictor of of his actions but i do think there is a danger i mean Going all the way back to when Chavez was first elected, you know, there have always been suspicions that the United States was doing everything it could to defeat the uh, Chavista Bolivarian revolution. Uh, I interviewed Chavez back in 2005, and then, and on many other occasions, he was accusing the United States of plotting against him. This was just a couple of years after they'd invaded Iraq, and he said, they're going to do to us what they did to Iraq, and they're going to do it for the same reason. They want our oil— This is a very deep-seated suspicion. What President Trump has done has given voice to, or given support, as it were, to uh, those suspicions in Venezuela. The other thing I think which does worry me, Trump is facing huge problems at home, and there is a long history of political leaders who, when they face serious problems at home, are looking for a foreign diversion, and it does worry me that this may be Trump's foreign diversion.
0: We only need to look at what's happening in Pyongyang to to work out that he's... I wonder whether he's got a big map on his kitchen table wondering but where he can start What would he
1: do, for example, if Maduro were to arrest
2: Guayado, or if the army were to arrest Guayado? Well, he
0: hasn't ruled anything out. There's this astonishing thing where we haven't ruled anything and we haven't ruled anything out. Maybe we've we got, have a
2: plan. We've also got Pompeo, the se- US Secretary of State, ordering US diplomats not to leave. Now, if US diplomats suddenly find themselves... Taken hostage, arrested in any ah, way—that old excuse. That, I remember well, that one. You yeah. remember that one? Yeah, <laughs> we've been here. It only before. takes a
0: few students. If I seem to remember.
2: Yeah, it's it's dangerous.
0: Let's move on now to Hong Kong, where if you head to a football match there, you'll find more than the usual rough and tumble in the stands. Many fans have taken the opportunity to engage in open political protests there. Some boo the Chinese national anthem, others turn their backs in frustration at Beijing's creeping influence. Well, now Hong Kong's authorities are to introduce a bill which would make disrespecting the Chinese national anthem a crime punishable by up to three years in prison. Um, Isabel, in your work at china dialogue how much are you seeing the the influence of beijing gripping what's happening in hong kong oh i you
1: know it's been a sort of steady encroachment for the past um, well since before the umbrella movement actually if you remember the umbrella movement was an attempt by uh, particularly young people in hong kong uh, to occupy parts of uh, the centre of the city in order to force uh, a widening of the franchise, um, because they felt already that, you know, Beijing's hand was on Hong Kong's collar, um, that it was interfering with the judicial system, that it was putting pressure on politics, and it certainly wasn't going to allow a transition to democracy. So one country, two systems, which China has systematically reinterpreted, to no one's great surprise. In favor of, uh, you know, closer alignment and integration with China at a time when China itself is moving towards a much more authoritarian model than everybody thought or hoped um, 15 years ago. You know, we see this in, in lots of ways. We see it in pressure on uh, on NGOs in Hong Kong. You see it on pressure on freedom of speech. You see it in, for example, the prosecution of the young leaders of of, um, of the Occupy Central movement like Joshua Wong. And the protests at football matches started around 2015, which is the year after Occupy Central. So again, they're, they're a, a response to this um, increasing pressure from Beijing and, and what Beijing trends tends to, to achieve with this is to create the situation that it says it doesn't want which is hostility towards Beijing and indeed an independence movement in Hong Kong which you know 15 years ago would have been unimaginable so you know they, they put more pressure on they create more resistance I wonder though how this is going to work are they going to arrest an entire football crowd how, uh, What's what are they going to, to do I think they
0: probably have a go actually well <laughs> (laughs) They'll pick
1: up one or two individuals and and hit them very hard and hope that it discourages the others, probably.
0: Reading into this a little bit earlier on today, I I sort of found myself reading an absolutely identical newspaper article from two or three years ago when they tried this before. At that time, they were going to uh, punish disrespect for the Chinese national anthem by 15 days in prison. Now that's gone up to three years.
2: It's, um, as Isabel says, uh, it's a steady encroachment. I mean, one of the surprises... I suppose, and I don't want to sound unduly cynical, is that it it hasn't happened before. Um, it's more than 20 years since uh, China gained control of Hong Kong when the UK handed it back. Uh, I, I was in Hong Kong when that happened in 1997, and all the people of Hong Kong wanted then, and I think what probably most of them only want now, is just to be allowed to get on with their lives. And uh, it always seemed unlikely that Beijing was going to allow them to live in a political system significantly different to the one that the rest of the people of China were living under. Um, they've managed up to a point until now, um, slowly, slowly, Beijing has been trying to tighten its grip, I think, and with a, a president now who uh, is, is, is not renowned for his tolerance of, uh, you know, thousand flowers blooming and lots of different freedom of expression, political views, ah... Uh, Yeah, my surprise is that it hasn't happened before.
0: Um, What I was thinking about when you were saying um, people wanting to get on with their lives is the very open way in which the Chinese mainland is now visible when you go to Hong Kong, that the skyline five years ago had skyscrapers with Western names on them, and now half of them are Chinese companies coming in. So, Isabel, the, the ability for people to get on with their lives... Chinese influence economically socially is is absolutely knitted into society now isn't it yes and and
1: you, actually if you if you if you're in Hong Kong I mean what I hear in Hong Kong and and what is visible you know in in various ways is a resentment of Beijing amongst uh, really across the board, and it's partly because the people of Hong Kong are not Northerners. You know, they speak Cantonese or or, or Fujian. They're 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 Southern Chinese, they, and that has always been a big divide in China. They don't. They, they, there are protests about the compulsory use of Mandarin, for example, which is you know the northern dialect of Chinese and the official and the official dialogue. Dialect. And um, you know, people don't speak Mandarin in Hong Kong. They don't like it. They don't like interference in their school system or the university system. And 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 actually with things like the kidnapping of, you know, the Hong Kong booksellers and a very prominent Chinese businessman from who was taken from a, a hotel in Hong Kong a couple of years back, people are beginning to feel a little unsafe. There have been attacks on journalists of, of a very unpleasant kind. And I think that this is going to spill over to foreign businesses too. I mean, if I were a Canadian businessman, for example, I'm not sure that I would go to China at this point, or indeed an Australian right now. And so, once you start getting that kind of unease, and Hong Kong, for all its faults, was was a, a, a sound judicial system. had an, It was pretty uncorrupt, and you were pretty safe. You could, you know, you could walk around Hong Kong without fearing that you were going to be snatched and taken to to Beijing. that's no longer true. And you see in the kind of surveys of youth opinion in Hong Kong, you see an increasing pessimism um, and young people thinking that they don't have a future there.
0: And from the point of view of other countries trying to deal with Hong Kong, um, we had the expulsion of the Financial Times's editor from Hong Kong simply for being part of an open discussion organisation. Journalists travelling to Hong Kong are being warned by their newsrooms, that their phones will be tapped, that they will be followed. Um, how does that affect a journalist's ability or the rest of the world's ability to see what's really going on?
2: It makes it more, more difficult, doesn't it? But you see, the, the the question which I've always had in the back of my mind is whether this, this formula, one country, two systems, which allowed the relatively painless transfer of Hong Kong from UK control to Chinese control, is actually sustainable indefinitely, or was it always implicit that at some point in the future, Hong Kong would become an integral part of the People's Republic of China, and it would be ruled in the same way? Or or was it always going to be something separate? And I'm not sure that question has ever really been answered. Well, it was
1: explicit, actually. It was in the in the agreement that, that Hong Kong's way of life would remain unchanged for 50 Did years. Did you believe that, though? No, because, <laughs> and I'll tell you why, um, because this is not the first time One Country, Two Systems has been tried. It was also in the 19-point agreement for the peaceful liberation of Tibet, so-called, uh, which was signed between the government of the Dalai Lama, as so a sovereign government, and the Chinese government. And within just a few, I mean, this was early days, and full of revolutionary fervor, but within a very short time uh, that, that was being encroached upon. Uh, there was, It provoked an uprising in, in, in Tibet in, in 1959, the flight of the Dalai Lama. So, you know, we've seen it before. But also looking to the next big question is, you know, what about Taiwan? Because Taiwan is watching this extremely closely and they don't believe in one country, two systems either. I think when the agreement was signed... It was still widely hoped, uh, if not assumed, that the that that China would become a more liberal and inclusive, uh, polity itself, and that therefore, you know, come you know the four or five decades that that would take, this would be a less painful uh, moment. But since then, we've seen tri- China go in the opposite direction.
0: Finally, on this, Isabel, are there other countries who are, ta- who are now looking at what's happening in Hong Kong and thinking, okay, our, our authorities can feel empowered to do the same to Satellites to and to the way that we represent ourselves public and the way we treat people. Well, I think that you the world is increasingly,
1: you know, becoming more authoritarian. It's not. It's not just China. I mean, it's India, as we know. It, it, it elements of, of you know, polity in 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 the United States are, are, are pretty disagreeable. Uh, Russia and so, you know, this is not, this is not a high point of, of democracy tolerance and inclusiveness around the world. Um, and China, you know, the degree to which China influences and, and and sets the weather for other countries shouldn't be underestimated. It's certainly trying. And that's, Also, what's provoking a backlash elsewhere?
0: My guests today on Midori House are Isabel Hilton and Robin Lustig. You're listening to Midori House. And coming up next, Malaysia elects a new king and Macedonia tries to choose a name. Stay with us.
2: Perk up and tackle Monocle's fit February issue. This is an essential guide for those looking to get in fighting shape for 2019. First up, we take a look at the people leading the way in whittling their nation's waistlines from Qatar to Tonga to Norway. On to the business section, where we sit down with Airbus's CEO to talk about what's in store for aviation, before checking out the company's streamlining and speeding up deliveries. In culture, we meet Rome's top art restorers, and in design, we touch down in Parma to meet Olab, the smart architecture firm that's transformed a palace into a sleek hotel. Monocle's February issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com.
0: The time here in London is 18.20. You're listening to Midori House Live on Monocle 24 with me, Emma Nelson. My guests in the studio today are Isabel Hilton and Robin Lustig. Well, will the almost three decades long row about what to call Macedonia ever be settled? Well, we may, just may be on the verge of putting the dispute to rest once and for all. But not quite. Greece's parliament is currently debating whether to agree that the nation which called itself Macedonia with the breakup of the former Yugoslavia will be called the Republic of North Macedonia. But to this day, the rows continue. Robin, it's taken 27 years of talks, protests continuing to this day. There were thousands taking the streets in Athens against this. Are we in the final throes of this argument?
2: Probably, but I wouldn't put money on it. I mean, both the governments of Greece and of the country that may soon be called the Republic of North Macedonia are teetering on the brink as a result of huge divisions in their own countries which still exist over this. I mean, it's one of these disputes... Well, I hesitate to use the word, but I mean it's a bit like Brexit. It's completely unintelligible to We've anybody outside that from this today. <laughs> uh, anybody outside the countries affected, but of immense importance to the people themselves. And the reason, actually, is is not dissimilar. It's all to do with identity. It's to do with how people think of themselves, what they call themselves, the traditions that they value, their national identity, their cultural identity. The Greeks think Macedonia is part of Greece, the people of the country that has been known as Macedonia or the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia or the Republic of North Macedonia, it might soon be, think of themselves as Macedonians. I mean, do the rest of us care what they call themselves? No, probably we don't. But they care, and that's the problem.
0: It's an important thing. Reaching into this, you see people saying, this is a row about Alexander the Great, which actually sort of... I got a little bit jealous that the British don't feel that way about going back all the way into their history. Oh, well,
2: we've got Boudicca.
0: I haven't I haven't seen anyone try to topple a government because I've heard names William Just Wallace Robert the Bruce yeah, it doesn't it go ex- quite that far back but you know one or two one or two national heroes and this is a lesson in persistence isn't it Isabel and um, I, I think it was a US diplomat Matthew Nimitz was given the job of solving the problem and it, and it was basically told don't come back until you've sorted this out <laughs> and this is this has required that long slow cook of a diplomatic problem that requires almost generational change in order for it to be sorted out yes it does and
1: it you never quite get rid of the lingering notion that a name uh, goes with with real estate um, because remember that Macedonia was divided up and that and one of the one of the effects of, the, of it being divided up is it's got two different cultures and it's got, a, you know, it's got a, a, a sort of Serb culture and, and a Greek culture. And, you know, that's also an identity issue. Um, and, and what they say in Greece is, well, if you let them call it Macedonia, they'll start trying to, you know, grab everything that's called Macedonia. And, you know, that's not a trivial question. So it's a very long, slow business confidence building and actually having rewards that are greater than any perceived cost um,
0: and giving a sense of security to all concerned it's a very slow business what i found astonishing was the fact that this thing this issue nearly brought down the greek government last week the greek government was not toppled by the austerity measures inflicted by the european union over several several years but this a name drilled really down deep into that a very strong sense of national pride that the greeks have
2: Absolutely. And I I think that this whole story reminds us that in that part of Europe... Borders and national definitions are relatively new. Um, the borders were only drawn at the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, well, barely 100 years ago. Um, the, these are still, in a sense, artificial entities. They haven't existed for thousands of years. Um, we know since the collapse of Yugoslavia that when borders are redrawn, when national identities change, it can lead to a huge amount of passion and a lot of bloodshed. I don't for a moment think that there's going to be a war between Greece and the, what shall I call it, <laughs> Republic of North Macedonia for now. Um, but nevertheless, you're right. Of course, passions run very high. And, it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's easy to mock and say, oh, for goodness sake, aren't there more important things to worry about? But, but questions of identity do. Do run very deep, and they are important to people, and they can't be ignored. Indeed, and they're I... always
1: available for a nationalist populist. That's that's the Absolutely. other danger of them. I mean, if you whisper Treaty of Trianon into the ear of a Hungarian, and see what happens, you know, you could you could really change the map of Europe if they, you know. And there is a recidivist. You know, there's always a recidivist undercurrent in in Hungary, trying to you know get back all the territories lost. Then people remember these things.
2: I mean, these, this is still the backlash, isn't it? Or the, the, the afterwash, whatever the term is from the collapse of two empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire relatively recently in you know the story of human history and uh, some of those stories have not yet run their course.
0: Finally a continuing story Malaysia has a new king Sultan Abdullah of Pahang was elected to succeed Sultan Muhammad V just a few hours ago he was the first monarch in the nation's history to abdicate so this is quite a lively tale I I always find that monarchies get sort of quite dusty and dry but this is great fun it's like a revolving door.
1: Well it's a formal revolving door I mean there is a system. Every five years, they elect a new one, and I love the election process. I don't know if you re- if you read the election process that all the, the the people in the room who are you know the heads of the of the provinces are given a slip of paper with a name on it. One name. name. One name. <laughs> Which kind of makes things simple, really doesn't? Yes, it? it's so, a sort
2: of rotating monarchy, isn't yeah, it? I mean, yeah. it's, it's like the rotating presidency of the European Union. It goes. It's Buggins' turn. Indeed. And uh, why not? I mean, yeah, but, mo- but, mon- monarchies by by definition are a bit bizarre, but so why not have a rotating one? But I think the real fun is in in why did the other one abdicate, ah, and wow. we, we ah.
1: we're determined not not to not to let us find that out.
0: Well, we have a Russian beauty queen being named Indeed. in all this as well, which sounds great. So who's going to he's going to put their 10p's worth of of what they think happened to... Sultan Mohammed V.
2: Well, if we're allowed to talk French, I mean cherche les femmes. I mean, is is is, is, is that the story? It's the sort of thing that maybe hello magazine could uh... <laughs> On a trouvé la femme. I <laughs>
0: mean <laughs> you were going for the plural there, wouldn't you? Oh <laughs> yeah. <Les femmes>. <laughs> <laughs> Ambition. Um the new one, Sultan Abdullah of Pahang, build widely as massively into sport. He's actually on the uh he's on the on, on the on the board of FIFA, isn't yes. he? I wonder why that's uh, they all got one name. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, indeed, I, yes. I, he's on the board of FIFA. I mean, there is there's also, you know, probably a a thread, a program to be made of minor royals who are on the board of sporting bodies. You know, if you if you troll around, you'll find that the you know the younger brother is usually kind of in the Olympics committee or, or involved with the football team. It Seems to be like it's like going into the church for the younger son of a of a of the landed. Genfrey. Well, Princess
2: Anne was something very big in the International Olympic Committee, she, wasn't she? It she was,
1: was, but she was also kind of she actually practiced a sport she, herself. She, or, she, you know, she Ride when, a horse, with yeah, horses, um, I'm, I'm not sure that this chap does, but he certainly. Oh, he did. It, no, I'm not sure he does, but he's certainly in the. Um, these these things do tend to give opportunities to countries, of course. So you know that might be uh, well, why it's, he's it, in
0: it. it. Recent history suggests it's actually quite messy in Malaysia. I mean, we've got the, the revolving door of the monarchy, which is which has been made slightly interesting by the departure of the last one, but. We had this huge upheaval of politics as well with, with scandals and, in fact, the new prime minister trying to strip the, the monarch's power away. Um, Malaysia is very lively over there at the it, moment, it, isn't it's it?
2: It's very lively, but I have to say, I have a sneaking admiration for the idea of a rotating monarchy, particularly in a country you know, like Malaysia, which is so diverse, has, what, 13 states and three federal territories, I think, and so what you do is you divide the monarchy up to try to keep everybody happy over a period of time. I think it's actually rather a good way of trying to do things. Uh, the monarch has, as, as I understand it, absolutely no power at all, so it, it's it, it's a symbol, And uh, if you've got a very diverse, spread out country made up of lots of different peoples with lots of different traditions, then this doesn't seem to be such a bad way of going about.
0: In which case, Robin, you seem to have just put yourself on the spot. Imagine you have just rebuilt the British monarchy and we've got five potential contenders who could possibly take take a, a sort of rotating uh, monarchy. Who are, you going, who are you choosing from? Well, Isabel, think of someone as well. I'll answer your question this Yorkshire? way. Let,
2: let's have a king or queen of Wales, let's have a king or queen of Scotland, let's have a king or queen of of Northern Ireland, probably one of Cornwall as well, or possibly even of North East England, um, and then get rid of them all, because I don't actually approve of monarchies.
0: Robin Lustig and Isabel Hilton, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Midori House. My thanks to our producer, Fernanda Augusta Facheco, our researcher, Marta Libri, and our studio manager, David Stevens. More music next, and at 1900, it's The Urbanist, and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, that's 1800 London time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.